Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. So I want to spend the rest of this morning as I go through uh, the sermon building on what Susan shared this morning. Uh, this is not originally what I planned on teaching this morning, but in response to this, I called an audible, and we're going to look at uh, concept, one of the concepts of faithfulness in the Bible. So we're going to start uh, in Isaiah 5. If you have a Bible, you can go find Isaiah 5. It'll be on the screen in a moment, but while you're finding Isaiah 5, I want to get our, our brain juices flowing. So I have a competition with May Newcomer, uh, who's the best gardener, and she's catching up, and so I have this blueberry bush at my house. I have a, a couple pine trees that I may have uh, scooped up from parks and top brought home. I have some uh, strawberry uh, plants, and we have these just we have a bunch of different plants in our yard, bushes and all this stuff. We have this blueberry bush that we 've had for about five years, and in five years i don 't think i 've gotten but about one blueberry off of this bush it 's so frustrating uh, for living so close to New Jersey, which is famous for blueberries i can 't get a blueberry off of this bush, and I've had it for about five years. I've done everything. I've repotted it into a different pot. I've changed the soil. I've probably watered this thing 500 times in five years, and I've gotten one stinking blueberry out of it. And it's, it's I, I mean, I'm, I'm to the point where I'm like pretty much done with this blueberry plant. Uh, it, it, all, I, all I get leaves, but I never get flowers, and the flowers, uh, and the, because I don't get flowers, I don't get blueberries. I wish I could blame the birds or the squirrels, but we don't even get to the point where there's flowers on this bush, so it's really, really frustrating. So one day I sat down with the blueberry bush. I set it in front of me. I said, what is your problem? I have... I have refreshed your soil. I've moved you all around the yard to get sunlight. I water you. I protect you. What is your stinking deal, blueberry bush? And the blueberry bush t- spoke back. And it said, oh, this is just really hard. Oh, I'm so uncomfortable. And I said, so what? You're a blueberry bush. Your whole purpose for existence is to make more blueberries. And the blueberry bush kind of like, oh, you're mean. And the blueberry bush said, this isn't how I was raised. I said, I don't care how you were raised. You're an adult blueberry bush at this point. I have names for the blueberry bush sometimes. I said, you're an adult blueberry bush. You've had five years. How are you not producing blueberries at this point? And the blueberry bush was like, oh, stop putting all these expectations on me. And I was like, my only expectation is that you do your purpose. Just do what you are. 
You know, I'm not asking you to give me grapes or apples or anything like that. You're a blueberry bush. Make blueberries. Okay, I may have embellished some of that story. Okay, the blueberry bush didn't really talk back to me. But that little parable, number one, was very cathartic. That little parable is something that God does in the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet Isaiah receives from the Lord a parable about a vineyard. And I'm going to read this. It should be up on the screen behind me. This is a parable about a vineyard. Let me sing now for my, my well let me sing now for my well beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard what more was there that what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it. Why then, uh, why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. I will not be pruned. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So here's this parable. The prophet Isaiah is using this story to illustrate God's relationship with Israel. God is, in this parable, the gardener. He has this vine, and the vine is Israel. Now, really quickly, I want to help us think about Israel the correct way. When we think about Israel, we often think, okay, are we talking about the nation, like the geopolitical state with borders and a government of modern-day Israel? Well, that's not necessarily how Isaiah was talking about it. There is a geopolitical Israel with you know, a government and borders and a prime minister and you know, laws. That is Israel. But that's not how this passage is talking about it. Are we talking about a race? Are we talking about an ethnicity like the Jewish people? Well, yes, but remember... Israel started not as a state or as a race, but as a family. If you go back to last week, we looked at Abraham. What is Israel? Abraham's grandson is Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. What was the promise that God gave Abraham? I'm going to make you a, a great nation, a, f- a family. The whole, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through your descendants. Right, So primarily, while Israel nowadays is a state, while Israel nowadays is a plot of land, while Israel nowadays is an ethnicity, it started as a family. And Jesus helped us understand Israel as it's the children of Abraham. Not even necessarily the biological children of Abraham, but the spiritual children of Abraham which means that you and I are grafted in to that family. Even though we weren't born in Israel, we don't have Jewish, well, maybe we do, but most of us don't have any Jewish DNA, 
But because we believe in the God of Abraham, we are Abraham's children and we are grafted into, it says in the book of Romans, Israel. Does that make sense? So in this parable, God is the gardener and Israel is this vine. Look what it says in verse one. It says, uh, the vineyard was on a fertile hill. Okay, so is the, is the ground good or bad on a fertile hill? It's good. This vine has been planted on good ground. Verse two, God the gardener digs all around, removing the stones. So if it's rocky soil, he's taking the rocks out of the soil. He planted it with the choicest vine, like a good vine he, he plants there. He builds a tower in the middle of it, which would be a little bit like a trellis, but it's, it's, this, it's not a shack or a shanty, it's a tower. He put a wine vat in the vineyard with expectations and then further expectations. Verse two, he expected it to produce good grapes. But what did it produce? Worthless grapes. And so God asks in verse four, what more was there for my vineyard that I have not done in it? What else could I have done? I've made sure that it had good soil. I've dug the rocks out of the soil. It's been given, uh, a, a, the, I've started with a choice vine. You know, a good, uh, uh, what do we call that, transplant. Every, this, Israel's set up for success. But nonetheless, we get to these worthless grapes that are coming from the family of Israel. And so God decides in verse five, He's going to remove the protective hedge. He's going to let all the other plants grow over and uh, encroach upon. Israel is going to remove the hedge. It's going to be consumed. He's going to break down the wall around it, which will allow people to trample it and walk over it. He's not going to prune it. You know, those of you that like to garden or know a little bit about uh, agriculture and horticulture, you have to prune things, right? You cut off everything that's not bearing fruit because they're sucking off the life and the nutrients that should be going to fruit. And so this is what's interesting to me. God's discipline for unfaithful Israel is I'm gonna stop cutting you. Does that make sense? He's actually saying I'm gonna stop pruning you. And if you ever sense in your life that God is unfaithful Israel is I'm gonna stop cutting you. That might actually be a sign of displeasure. We often he's actually think saying that when God, God prunes stop us, he's angry. pruning you. Pruning is the reward for faithfulness. And if you ever sense in your life that God is unfaithful Israel, not terrifying things, cutting that might when actually God stops be a sign correcting of us. Does that make sense? When God stops saying, hey, we he's actually saying, when God prunes us, he's pruning. angry. That should terrify pruning us. Pruning is the reward for faithfulness. If you ever sense in your life that God is unfaithful Israel, not terrifying things, when God stops correcting us, verse 7 makes it clear that the vineyard of Israel is actually saying, God prunes us, that should terrify us. Pruning is Whoever said he was using, he, he makes it clear in case the uh, subtleties are going over their head. He's like, I'm talking about you, Israel. You're like this vine. Yeah, this is, yikes. I mean, God is so creative in the ways that he confronts uh, or speaks to, not only confronts, but loves us. Sometimes he's direct, other times he uses parables. You know, I think of the prophet Hosea who had to marry a prostitute just as a symbol of God's love for unfaithful Israel. 
So there's this parable here. God is the gardener. He's the caretaker of the vine. He gives the, the vine every chance to thrive, yet the vine still produces worthless fruit. So God lets it fall into disrepair, and we find out, just to make it clear, that vine, this whole parable is a picture of Israel, the family uh, Israel. Now Psalm 80 actually also talks about Israel in these same terms and uses the illustration of a vine. If you go to Psalm 80, verse 8. Before I read it, I want to review some of the history of Israel. We learned last week Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. Abraham's grandson is Israel. He has 12 sons. Those are the 12 tribes of Israel. And out of that, you get you know millions and millions of people, probably billions at this point. But in the book of Exodus, it's about probably about 2 million Hebrew, Jewish, Israelite people, right? We can't necessarily call them Israelite because they're not in the land of Israel, so I'll call them, I'm going to call them Hebrew, okay? Two, th- two million Hebrew people. They're in Egypt. What are they doing in Egypt? What are, what's their position in society? They're slaves, right? For 400 years, slaves in Egypt. But you guys know the story, there's 10 plagues. Moses comes on the scene, there's 10 plagues. God takes them out of Israel. This is actually what I thought we were gonna be talking about today. God takes them out of Israel and he says, I'm gonna send you to Canaan. That's the land God promised Abraham 400 years before, 500 years before. God said, hey, Abraham, I'm gonna give you this land called Canaan. Well, Abraham's descendants go into slavery. 400 years later, says, okay, go into Canaan. And what does God do? He tells them, I'm going to move all the, other nation, all the other people that live in Canaan, I'm going to move them out, and you're going to settle in Canaan. So we get to Psalm 80, verse 8. This is uh, the psalmist, Asaph, saying this to God. You removed a vine from Egypt, and you drove out the nations and planted it. Okay, who's the vine? The people of Israel. He removed them from Egypt where they were in slavery. He, he dug them out of the ground, uprooted them, and planted them in a good gl- r- land, which we say flows with milk and honey, right? That's how we describe it. Drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it. Didn't we read in Isaiah 5 that God cleared the rocks out of the ground? Okay, you cleared the ground before it. It took deep root and filled the land. So the ground is good. The vine is taking root. The vine actually starts to grow. It says the mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. This vine's doing well. Verse 12, change of tone. Why have you broken down its hedges? Which is exactly what God said he would do in Isaiah. I'll, tear, I'll break down the hedges. I'll break down the walls. Why have you broken down the hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats it away and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. So here's this vine. God plucked it up out of Egypt, cleared the ground in the good lands, planted it there. It's, it's growing. So why all of a sudden does God remove the protection? Well, we know that we know we can fill in the gaps in this story. We know that Israel is ultimately unfaithful. Uh, these psalms are probably coming several hundred years later. We've already seen what Israel has done with its kings. If you guys remember, Israel had about forty kings. 
20 in the northern kingdom and 20 in the southern kingdom, about two-thirds of them were wicked. And so because they were wicked, God disciplined Israel. And so that's why the hedge is removed. Does that make sense? So we have this situation in the Old Testament where God is continually comparing Israel to this fruitless grapevine. It's not bearing fruit. It won't be pruned and it won't remain faithful to God. It actually reminds me of us. You know, hard, hard for me to pick on Israel when we, left to our own devices, do the exact same things, right? So let's go to John 15, where we find the New Testament correlation here. John 15, 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser or gardener. So here, we're in Isaiah 5, Psalm 50, John 15. Who's the gardener in all three passages? God the Father, right? Jesus says, I am the true vine, contrasting himself with Israel. Does that make sense? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So I want to spend the rest of our time on John chapter 15. Uh, If you haven't picked up yet, this is the passage our church is named after. Probably preach this passage more than any other passage here at true vine. But this passage in John 15 has three main parts. The first part, which is verses 1 through 11, tell us how the disciples relate to Jesus. Okay, this is, this is actually spoken in its immediate context. It's not for all of us. It's for the 12 disciples. Now, nowadays, as we take a, take a step back, it is for all of us. But originally, Jesus is talking to his 12 disciples. And the first 11 verses are how those 12 disciples relate to Jesus. But then there's a second section which is verses 12 through 17, which is how the disciples are supposed to get along with one another. And then there's a third section, which is verses 18 through 27, which is how the disciples are supposed to get along with the rest of the world. Does that make sense? So let me tell you where I'm going with this. I'm gonna give you the end of the story before we get to the end. I think we're in danger. Us, but not just us, the entire church in the United States is in danger of choosing the world over other disciples. We would rather have unity with the world and division in the church than unity in the church with separation from the world. Does that make sense? So that's where we're going with this today. So if you need to leave, this would be a good time. (laughs) So... Verses 1 through 11 tell us about the disciples' relationship to Jesus. Let's make sure that we're reading the Bible correctly. Who is the true vine? Jesus. Not us. Okay? We would very easily want to say, oh, in the Old Testament, Israel, they're this unfaithful, fallen vine, but now the church is the true vine. No. Jesus is the true vine. What are we? The branches. 
or the branches that come off of the vine. Who's the gardener? God, God the Father. We are branches. How do branches relate to a vine? Think about grapevines. Maybe you don't know much about grapevines, but those of you that do, think about a grapevine. How do the branches relate to the vine? They sprout right out of it, right? I think most of you know I have a grapevine that I keep on the church property. I had to actually cut 99% of that back this year. I thought that I was actually terminating it. This thing is so the opposite of this blueberry bush. I took a saw, I got down to the, the, the top inch that sticks out of the ground, I cut that thing clean off, flat. It looked like a little grapevine stump. It was about this, like the, as thick as a can of soda or beer, Ruby. So, uh, <laughs> I'm sure I'll pay for that. Um, it was about this. I'm just going to stand. So, it's about this big around. I cut that thing off, man, and stuff came out of it for days. And then you know what came out of it? A little shoot. It's coming back. It's already four feet long of new vine. I'm about to introduce my uh, blueberry bush to it. I'm just going to bring it over here and shame it. Look at this grapevine. I tried to kill it and it's growing. You, I can't get to do anything. So the, the reason I had to cut it back was because the branches were so intertwined with one another that I couldn't control them. The branches were just like interwoven with one another. And, and that grapevine was bearing so much fruit, there were constantly flies and squirrels and birds attacking uh, when I, every time I would walk past it. And so I had to cut it back because it was too productive. I, I pruned it big time, major pruning. So we are the branches, Jesus is the vine. Let me pick up in uh, verse five. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This also shows us how we relate to Jesus. What can you accomplish that's spiritually meaningful without Jesus? Nothing, right? Now, can you get a job? Sure. Can you tie your shoes? Of course. But can you bear fruit that remains? No. You cannot bear spiritual fruit without Jesus. So if you're going to settle for a life that bears no spiritual fruit, you can do that. Knock yourself out. You can live a fruitless life, but you can't live a fruitful life without Jesus. You can live a fruitless life on your own. Verse 10, uh, well actually I'll pick up in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So we glorify God by what? Bearing fruit. That's actually what glorifies God. Not the other things that we try to glorify God with. Shouting at people, mistreating people. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to step on any toes, so I can't use any examples here, but like we glorify God when we bear fruit, not when we pretend and act religious, but when we bear fruit. Verse 9 Just as the Father has loved me, 
I have also loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken so that you may uh, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So here's the final way that we relate to Jesus. We keep his commands. How do we demonstrate love for Jesus? By keeping his commands. Now, we can, of course, we sing, we pray, we give, we serve. We do all of these things, right? But all of those are, should be like the result or the response to obeying the commands of Jesus. And when I think of the commands of Jesus, I do not go back to the Ten Commandments, although that's within the scope. I actually go to the Sermon on the Mount. The commands of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, John, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, our love for Jesus is demonstrated in how we fulfill those commands. And if we do that, we remain in his love, and it says in verse 11, our joy is made full. Joyful Christians really glorify God. Um, now, I'm from a more grumpier uh, strain of Christianity that uh, I read the Old Testament prophets and they all seem grumpy and I say, okay, I want to be like them, so I'm going to be grumpy. But when I read Jesus, he just seems generally joyful. Sometimes he's angry at some stuff, but he seems winsome and joyful and happy and he's not always anxious and fearful and scared. And Joy really has a greater impact than grumpiness. I don't know. I guess that should be self-evident, but maybe it's not. Joyful Christians glorify God. Uh, grumpy Christians, I think, uh, do a disservice to the kingdom when we're always in a bad mood. Now, I understand grumpiness. Believe me. I understand grumpiness. I get it. Uh, I'm a dog person, but I have the soul of a cat just constantly grumpy and you know, wanting to be alone. But I know that that's something to overcome, not something to try to justify. So that's how we relate to Jesus. He's the vine, we're the branches. We recognize that apart from him, we can do nothing. We show love for him by keeping his commands, which results in fullness of joy. Now, the next section actually tells us how the disciples relate to one another. In fact, in your Bible, the heading might even say something like that, how the disciples relate to one another. Verse 12 through 17, this is my commandment. Remember, we're supposed to fulfill the commandments of Jesus, right? This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Okay, how much are we supposed to love each other? the same degree to which God loves us. Not a little less, not something. He doesn't even say brothers and sisters or friends. He actually says, as much as God the Father, uh, or as much as Jesus has loved us, we should love other people. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what the, his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. So we looked already at how the disciples relate to Jesus. Here's how the disciples should relate to one another. They are to be entangled with one another, connected with one another. We are first supposed to be entangled with Jesus and now we're supposed to be entangled with the church, entangled with other disciples. 
He says that we're, we're to love each other the way Jesus loves us. Now, 1 John says something very similar. We love others because Christ first loved us. Or we, we love because he first loved us. I think the biggest ish, issue that relates to this in the church is like we just don't even know how much Jesus loves us. We like probably could sing a song about it, probably could quote a verse about it, but as far as having actual firsthand experience encounters with God's love, where it warms us and we feel God's love for us, if we could just have more of that, then I think people would love others more. But instead we have three steps to loving your neighbor, the ABCs of loving your spouse, and like these acronyms, we need encounters, not acronyms. We need experiences, not mnemonic devices to help us remember stuff. Because you know what? When you have a life-changing encounter with God, you don't need help remembering it. Does that make sense? Okay. So we're commanded to love one another the same way that Jesus loves us. It actually goes on to say in verse 13, Jesus being the prime example of this, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And, and who demonstrated this better than Jesus, right? Jesus actually says to them, I'm not going to call you servants anymore. I call you friends. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus did lay down his life for his friends, right? Now, that's the example that we're supposed to follow. And most of us will never be asked to literally die for another person. You know, most of us will not have to actually lay our our life existence on the, on the line for other people, but I know that on a daily basis we are asked to lay our lives down on behalf of other people. And you know what that looks like? It means sometimes laying down your preferences, laying down your comfort, laying down your will on behalf of other people. Does that make sense? Putting those things uh, down so that you can maintain relationship with one another. Let me be very practical and direct and straightforward about this. This is happening all over America right now. People are choosing their social and political ideas over their family, over their friends. They would never lay down their life for another person. They're not even willing to lay down their ideology. This is going on all over the country, both sides of the aisle, um, where people would, are, are saying see ya to friends and family because of a political thing or a social thing. And if the world's going to do that, that's fine, but that is inappropriate in the church. And Jesus is saying that there's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. So I'm not telling you what you have to believe. I'm just telling you you can't elevate it over your brothers and sisters in Christ. Does that make sense? You can vote and feel however you want, but what, the way I think about it is like addiction. How do you know that you have an addiction? I mean, there are things people get addicted to. People get addicted to alcohol. People get, but, but it's not wrong necessarily to drink. People get addicted to shopping, but of course you have to shop, right? People get addicted to sex, but of course sex within marriage is acceptable. So like there are these things, food, people get addicted to food, but of course you have to eat. So how do you know that it's an addiction? Well, when it starts to have a harmful impact on your health or your relationships, 
or your finances, you know it's an addiction, right? This is how I believe people are treating social activism and politics today. Have your views, be involved, but when they start to hurt your relationships and they start to hurt your health and they start to hurt your family, maybe you have an addiction. Does that make sense? When it starts to have a negative impact the way alcohol might or shopping might or food might, okay? So we want to lay down our lives for our friends following the example of Jesus because he's the prime example of this. Jesus calls us friends. This reminds me that when I'm talking to other Christians, I'm talking to friends of Jesus. That's not just directed to me. This, this verse doesn't say, oh, Jim, you're Jesus' friend. It says the disciples are Jesus' friend. So when I have a conversation with Glenn, I need to remember he is friends with Jesus. So I better act right, right? We have a mutual friend, Jesus. I'm Jesus' friend, but so is he Jesus' friend. What a ridiculous situation where we could be in a room where I'm Jesus' friend and you're Jesus' friend, but we can't be friends with one another. Oh my gosh. How ridiculous is that, right? I, it's incredible to me Jesus hasn't struck all of us with lightning uh, already. It's only his mercy that he hasn't. Now, that's how the disciples relate to one another. There's this final thing here, how the disciples relate to the world. Picking up in verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it has hated you. Let me stop right there. Have you ever wanted to be friends with someone who had no interest in being friends with you? Sometimes we get sucked into that with the world. We want them to like us so much. But here Jesus is saying, hey, you know, the more you're with me, they're going to hate you. And we chase after this like, but I want to be friends with the world. And so we end up like designing our churches in a way that reflect the world more than the kingdom. And we end up living our lives in a way that would please the world more than it would please the Lord. When Jesus said already, they're going to hate you. If you're associated with me, they're going to hate you. Why are they going to hate you? So the, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. You're not a pioneer. <laughs> you're not the first person to be persecuted. You're not the first person to have a hard experience. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because out of the uh, because. Of this, the world, because of this, the world hates you. Sorry, I wrote this sermon at 10 o'clock last night. First time reading these passages. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, would not have sinned, but now that they have no excuse for sin. He who hates me hates my father also. 
If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would ha- not have sin, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. Here's what Jesus is saying. Hey, if I didn't come and tell them to love everybody and do a bunch of miracles, they'd have an excuse. But all I did was tell them, love everybody, and I healed the sick and cast out demons and fed people, yet they rejected me. Their excuses have been removed. Jesus is in the excuse removal business. And that goes for the church as well as the world. You know why Israel didn't bear good fruit in the Old Testament? Excuses. Oh, this is too hard. That stupid blueberry bush of mine with its excuses. I wasn't raised this way. No one taught me how to do this. I don't know. It's too hard. Man, those excuses. I don't know what we think we're getting away from here. Because Paul said you have the Holy Spirit in you. I'm not sure, you know, like, do you think God sets you up for failure or sets you up for success? I think God sets us up for success. And so the excuses are just preventing us from fulfilling our destiny and our calling. And I want desperately to fulfill my destiny and my calling. So I want to push through those things. They might all be true and valid, but don't let them stop you from being who Jesus made you to be, right? And like that blueberry bush of mine, I'm I'm saying to it, of course, this is a metaphor, you're a blueberry bush. All you're supposed to do is make more blueberries. To Christians, I would say, you're a Christian. All you're supposed to do is make more Christians. That should be the fruit coming from your life. And are you making more Christians? Are more people resulting in their faith in Jesus, or are you turning people away? Are you preventing fruit from being born? Now, uh, sorry, that was off topic. So let me pick up in verse... uh, 23, he who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law, they hated me without cause. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning." So here's how the disciples are going to relate to the world. They're going to be hated. And we know that all the disciples, except John, were martyred. They were all killed. John's the only one that wasn't killed, but he was shipped off on an island to live by himself, which actually sounds like a great vacation about now. But he was sent in isolation and exile to an island to live by himself, and his freedoms were taken away. He was basically quarantined. (sighs) not only does the world hate us, there's persecution in our future. And I'm not saying that because of our circumstances and what's going on in the world. I'm saying it because what's in the Bible. Anyone that wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will encounter persecution, Paul wrote. If you get persecuted should not be a question. When you face persecution is a question. Now, we don't experience much persecution in the United States, although it seems like that potentially is increasing, but most of the persecution we face is like nasty words and rude behavior, right? Wait till you lose a job or lose a house or go to prison. I don't want to experience any of that, but I know this. The church will get real pure real quick when that starts happening because there won't be any fakers left. There won't be any half-hearted 
poser, bootleg Christians when it starts costing us something, right? So while I'm not running to get there, there is a part of me that says, we're going to find out what's real when that day comes. And I hope that you're with me when that day comes. Verse 23 says that the world hates the Father. Verse 26, verses 26 and 27, this is how we relate to the world. Verse 26 says, when the helper comes, who's the helper? The Holy Spirit. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, which I believe that's already fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. The helpers come, okay? So are we, do we need to wait on the helper anymore? Or Okay, the helper's here. It says, Jesus will testify, but then in verse 27, and you will testify also. Here's how we're going to relate to the world. Holy Spirit-empowered testimony. We're going to testify to the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's our testimony to the world. This is executed through sharing the gospel, like effectively preaching the gospel. From God is good, we screwed it up, but God is good and sent a savior and God is good and he's going to redeem the earth and we respond to that or we reject it, right? From presenting the gospel to sharing testimonies of what God's done in your own life, to sharing testimonies, like when the Bible talks about testimonies in like Psalm 119, it's talking about stories of miracles, parting the Red Sea, walking, you know, well, walking on water's New Testament, but these, these testimonies of God that we share, and we do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. So when the helper comes, we're going to do that. Now, I put this together after hearing from Anna and Susan about last night's prayer meeting because I do, you know, I'm not a robot. I feel what people are going through. I feel the exhaustion that's settling in over people. I feel the frustration. I feel the fear and the anxiety. I pick up on that. Like I, I get that. I feel a lot of it myself. Not just, not only do I feel your stuff, I feel my own stuff. So I get all of it. And I think a lot of it is really valid. But I just have this like supreme principle that all of that stuff might be true, but I want so desperately to see the kingdom of God on earth that I have to push through those things. You know what I mean? You're anxious? Okay. First Peter 5, 7, cast your anxiety on Jesus. You're afraid? Okay, 365 verses say don't be afraid. I'm exhausted, man. So are you probably, right? Are you exhausted with this? You got corona fatigue? You got election fatigue? <laughs> I'm so tired. I'm just, I got three kid fatigue. You know, toddler fatigue. I'm not even the one that is raising this third one. He doesn't even know me. <laughs> Man, we're, we're tired, and, and we're tired for good reason. But maybe it's time that we stop being tired and stop relying on our own strength. 
Maybe it's time that it's like, finally, oh, I wish there was a day where I would just, you know, have a breakthrough and rely on the whole, well, maybe today's that day then. Maybe we're getting to the end of our rope, the end of our resources. Maybe this is the day when the helper comes to us as individuals and we begin to testify. Maybe this is the day where we push through. Maybe this is the day where we begin to like fully walk in our identity and not need to always be comforted and, and you know, uh, feel good about stuff. I think that if, our, if we as individuals are going to survive, if our faith is going to survive the next 12 months, we're going to have to do what John said, abide in Jesus, remain in Jesus, or to borrow from Susan's word, be entangled with Jesus. And I think he is saying, stop getting tangled up with the world and its systems and its ideas. Pull out of that and be tangled up with Jesus. I think we get tangled up with Jesus when we spend time in his word, when, we, when we're in prayer, like that, these longer prayer times, we get tangled up with Jesus. When we worship, we get tangled up with Jesus. When we serve, when we get caught up in fulfilling the commands, we get tangled up with Jesus. And when you're tangled up with Jesus, it's harder for the world to pull you in, right? And so as I said a couple moments ago, this is where I'm going with this. We're gonna have to choose who we get tangled up with, right? If, if we choose to be entangled into the world and its systems, it's gonna lead to division in the church. But if we choose to be entangled with Jesus and his people and the other branches, it's going to lead to separation from the world. Or what did this passage say we're supposed to live with? Love for one another, love for disciples, but the world is going to hate us. Now, please don't uh, misrepresent that, that we're to love disciples and hate the world. We don't hate the world. The world hates us. Okay? God so loved the world, we should be demonstrating love even though we don't receive love in return. And we show love to our brothers and sisters in Jesus. So we have to disentangle ourselves from the world and be abiding, or that word just means remaining in Jesus. Okay, I need the worship team to come up and join me on stage. I want to give us a couple minutes to respond to this however the Holy Spirit prompts us to. Um, I felt as I was preparing kind of a brokenness, like a brokenness and a desire to repent. And then maybe that might be where you are. Maybe instead you feel like an excitement for what the Holy Spirit's going to do in you, through you. Maybe you're just like going back to the early, early days of your walk with Jesus, but we're going to sing through this song. I want to invite you to take some time to respond. If you need to get on your knees, get on your feet, get on your face, you're welcome to do that. We've never had more space between the chairs than we have now. You could actually lay out if you needed to. I want to pray for us, and then Rachel and the team are going to lead us in worship. Jesus, I do feel like from what Susan shared onward was just a specific word for us right now. That this was, if you were going to say something to True Vine, this would be it. And that you have said it. So just as we prayed after Susan spoke and say we accept this, 
Lord, I pray that we would make a determination that we would accept or reject what we looked at, that you are the true vine, that we, uh, apart from you, we would be faithless, fallen, do-nothing, bad fruit-bearing vines. But you're the true vine and we're branches that spring off of you. Lead us in our individual responses. Lead us in a corporate response. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.